Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this series of podcasts, we're firing up our metaphorical VAR system and closely scrutinising the marginal penalty decision that is UK trade policy. And in this latest episode, we're coming over all strategic as we examine the question of supply chains for pharmaceutical products. It's a subject which 12 months ago would primarily have been the domain of academics and those with axes to grind on the subject. But COVID-19 has changed all of that. And now the question of how to secure our national supply of often life-saving drugs is an issue of vital national importance. The UK imports about £25 billion worth of pharmaceutical products each year from a wide range of supplier countries. Even during the worst phases of this year's COVID-19 crisis, we haven't run short of essential drugs. But how confident can we be that such a disaster would never happen? Are too many of our pharmaceutical eggs in one basket? What role is there for public policy and for trade policy in ensuring that our pharma supply strategy is the right one? And how does the minor complication of Brexit affect the equation? TradeBite's prescription for understanding this topic better is a double dose of expert insight. And that being the case, I'm delighted to welcome my two guests today. Joining us from Brighton is Dr. Sam Roscoe, Senior Lecturer in Operations Management at the University of Sussex and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And also a warm welcome to Dr. Richard Torbett, Chief Executive of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Richard Torbett, can you set the scene for us? What's the size of the UK pharmaceutical market? Is it a growing market, a shrinking market? What are the dynamics involved? I think when we think about pharmaceutical market, I I think it's important to think about three broad buckets and to be really clear what we're talking about. Firstly, new medicines that are typically protected by intellectual property rights, so a combination of patents and regulatory data exclusivity, and that intellectual property right is is required in order to provide incentives for the private sector to invest many billions, hundreds of billions a year uh, in research and development, which is very high risk. Those new medicines are typically called the branded part of the market, and that's the part of the pharmaceutical market that I represent at the ABPI. As medicines lose their intellectual property exclusivity, they become generic and any company is able to use the information published in the patents to be able to produce copies of that medicine and compete and the the price comes down. Third part of the market is that often when medicines are much more established with far more long-term data on safety and efficacy, among other regulatory considerations, uh, regulators will make a decision that that medicine can be bought and sold over the counter in something like a Boots or a Tesco's or a, or a Sainsbury's. So, so that's the third part of the market, the over-the-counter piece, and that would be the sort of paracetamols and aspirins that you'd go and get from, uh, from your local pharmacy. 
So with those three buckets in mind, and I think that's important context for this whole conversation, because I think the supply conditions in each of these three are quite different. The challenges are quite different and the potential solutions may be quite different as well. The branded medicines piece is around £11 billion of spend, and that is actually a capped market. So we uh, have a five-yearly agreement with the NHS, uh, which means that the growth of that market cannot go beyond 2% in any year. If the NHS uses more medicines, the companies end up paying back to the NHS. So it's a very, very predictable growth. Very finally, as you've said, Chris, in the introduction, it's a very highly traded sector. It's between about 25 and 30 billion a year is pretty much the sort of average over the over recent years. And again, in the branded part of the market, the majority of that import would come from the European Union, that's 7% for US. But again, it's, there's a lot of imports, a lot of imports were pretty much in balance, a slight surplus across the market as a whole. Okay, thanks for setting the scene there. Sam Roscoe, we've heard that the UK gets the bulk of its pharmaceuticals imports from the European Union. Strategically speaking, is this a problem? Should we be diversifying our sourcing strategies a bit broader than that? Well, I think the distinction that Richard made there about the categories of drugs is important because, like he said, the branded products coming from the European Union is one issue. Then with the generics, actually, the majority of the generic products actually come from China and India. So things like paracetamol that everybody's familiar with, you have the active pharmaceutical ingredients, primarily 80% odd being manufactured in China. Those APIs then being sent to India, India then adding the excipients and doing the packaging and sending to us here in the UK. So you have, generally speaking, two different types of supply chains, one for the generics, which relies heavily on India and China, and then the other one for the branded products, which relies heavily on the EU. In those instances, obviously, geographically speaking, with branded products, we're geographically closer to the European Union. That reduces risks in terms of, you know, you have the channel to cross. It makes it relatively easier to get access to products. Obviously, Brexit throws up a number of challenges, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But what's interesting about the generic market in particular, and some of the big challenges I think that we have there, and that we saw during the pandemic is is what happened with products like paracetamol. So when the virus began hitting across India, a knee-jerk reaction of the Indian government was actually to stop exports. So they put a ban on 20 different types of products, paracetamol included, that they were willing to send out of India. And they said, well, we want to restrict the export of this good because we make it here. We want to hold it here for for the Indian population. The UK government intervened after a couple of months and was able to lift that ban. But that did create a disruption in terms of the supply into Europe. At the same time, you had issues with China. Obviously, China was the first country to shut down. As China began to shut down, then you had India following suit and then the UK. So when you have a generic drug market that is so centered on two countries, it does create a substantial amount of risk, in my opinion. And I do definitely think there is a need for diversity in the generics market. I think the branded market is more stable. Like Richard has pointed out in the past, it has been able to respond, is geographically closer, and you have quite a range of products coming from from the branded market. So I think there's more resilience there. The generic market is where I think we have a cause for concern because of the length of the supply chain and also because it is so centralized within those two countries. How close have we ever come to running out of drugs? 
I mean, how vulnerable are we? Well, I think if you look at, again, with the generics, if you look at paracetamol, and if if you were like me and you went to the shops at the end of March and in April, there was no paracetamol on the shelves. Boots ran out. There was a lot of pharmaceutical companies and pharmacies that had, because there was a huge spike in demand, paracetamol wasn't available. So that was, in the first instance, that was driven by demand. And then you also had the supply ramifications, like I mentioned before, as India began to bar exports and and China shut down their manufacturing operations. So paracetamol is, is an instance where that can happen, and we have seen it happen. It also happened with asthma inhalers and hydrochloric when President Trump decided that that might be a treatment. There was a run on hydrochloroquine as well. So it can happen, and there are instances in the past, I would say, the majority of pharmaceutical supply has, has actually been quite robust and is standard the, the test of the virus. But there are instances when you have a huge spike in demand because you have these big global supply chains for the generics, it takes a long time to be able to build up and get those products back onto store shelves. Now, one of the words of the year, I guess, so far is reshoring. This idea that you can make the supply chain shorter by producing more of the stuff you need in your own country. I wonder, Richard, whether you think that is a viable option to any extent for the United Kingdom. Is it something that we should be looking at? So to me, I think the primary focus, the first focus of any conversation about these issues needs to be about resilience before getting to the reshoring bit, if you see what I mean. Resilience is the goal. So I think there's an understandable tendency to kind of lurch towards, you know, and there's some, you know, there's some actually quite some extreme versions of this that you see in the media over the last few months that would assume a kind of almost complete autarky approach to medicines manufacturing, uh, which I, don't, I just don't think would work on many, many levels. Onshoring may well be part of the solution. And we may well, there will be, you know, we have a good manufacturing base here already. And, you know, if there is an opportunity to expand it, I think we should do. But, you know, I would be really cautious about starting there because, it's really important to understand all the facets of resilience that that will have an impact on our, our ability to supply medicines. Sam, you mentioned just now that the vast majority of our generic drugs are sourced from China and India, China being a country where our political relationships are not always as harmonious as they could be. Who else might be able to supply these drugs? Are there alternative suppliers that might be able to produce these drugs in the quantities that we need? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's an important question. And I think, obviously, the volumes that are coming out of China, that's that's where China really excels, is they, their unit cost of production is incredibly low. They have the labor force, they have the facilities, they are able to produce at very, very high volumes. India, similarly, they have a similar labor base and they're able to do mass manufacturing and keep their unit costs very, very low. Now, my argument around this is if we only look at this from a unit cost of production, then it only really makes sense to manufacture in China and India. If we look at this from a risk perspective, and if we look at it from a resilience perspective, 
then that means that we need to begin to look at spreading our geographical risk and moving these production facilities to areas that are either closer to the UK or geographically spread. And that means that your unit cost of production may be a bit higher, but it means that your the risk and resilience in your supply chain is better because if you do have a country that is shutting down because of a virus or maybe a tsunami or a hurricane or whatever it is, you're able to move your production capacity to different locations quicker. So if you look at purely from cost, it might not make sense, but if you look at from a risk and resilience perspective, it is strategically sound to have more manufacturing locations geographically spread across the world that are able to distribute into your major markets. I'd like to pick up on that point about reshoring because I think that's really important. And I don't think reshoring is the answer to all of our problems either. I think it might be part of the solution. And I've discussed this uh, with Richard before during our International Trade Committee meeting. And this is the idea of parallel supply chains. And the parallel supply chain idea is where you can have a percentage of your production located in the UK. Maybe that's 10 or 20% of critical drug manufacturing is located in the UK. And then you have the capacity to ramp up production when a crisis hits. So if you do have a global pandemic, if there's a second wave or there's a new strain of the virus, that parallel supply chain model allows you to bring up production levels quickly probably within hopefully three to six months, and you can ramp up your production and supply the UK market while at the same time having an international supply chain. And I think that's really important because if we look at what's happening currently in the UK, you have Brexit. With Brexit, the pharmaceutical companies were asked to hold six weeks of stock by the UK government. So the companies went ahead and they began building up stock during 2018, during 2019. Having that stock, that buffer stock on hand was a large reason why the companies were so responsive to the crisis when it hit because there was buffer stock that was available. Now, we've gone through the process of the COVID-19, and it's still an ongoing process. A lot of those stocks are beginning to be depleted over time. And then guess what? We have the no-deal Brexit possibly on the horizon. So our company is then going to be able to build up stocks again. How do you begin to build up those buffer stocks when you have multiple crises such as Brexit and COVID-19 all hitting at the same time? And my argument there is, is if you had production capacity located within the UK and you had the flexibility to switch your production capacities between international centers and local centers, then you would be able to have more flexibility in your supply chain to respond to uh, multiple crises. Richard, we've touched on Brexit on a couple of occasions. Can you just explain to us what is the potential problem from particularly a no-deal Brexit? Why would that create problems in the supply chain specifically? Well, we hope it won't, of course. But um, and we've been working incredibly hard since 2016 to try and make sure that, you know, as we as the clock ticks midnight on the day that we actually leave the transition period, there isn't any any difference. But but you know, Sam's quite right that you know, as, as stockpile was part of a package of activity and measures that were taken to limit risk during actually during the lead up to the various no deal deadlines that, that didn't end up happening last year. 
And that is alongside other measures like, for instance, companies went to a lot of effort to diversify supply routes in, distribution routes into the country. Um, you know, we worked out pretty early on that there was an enormous share of the imports from the European Union that relied on roll-on, roll-off lorries going through the Dover, Calais, Short Straits. And so companies went to a lot of effort to make sure that more supply routes were open in case of delays at the border, and that remains in place today. In terms of the outlook for the end of the year, obviously we're, we're coming to the end of the transition period and we're, you know, the government is in the middle of its negotiation with the European Union. There is still a lot of uncertainty, particularly around where we will end up in terms of the regulatory environment in, in the UK vis-a-vis uh, the European system. We're currently regulated as part of the European framework. We absolutely need to have some sort of mutual recognition agreement signed off whereby uh, what we call batch testing and release. So every manufactured batch of medicines needs to get tested in a lab before it gets released onto the market to make sure it's up to standard and safe and high quality. We need the UK to recognise all of the batch testing and release that happens in the European Union so that we can import the product. And similarly, we need the EU to recognise the batch testing and release that happens in the UK. Now, these are medicines we're talking about here. All due respect to everything else that gets traded in these negotiations, these are medicines that people rely on to to stay alive half the time. Now, it ought to be a no-brainer, but we still don't have clarity on that. And and, and that is something that's very important to get done by the end of the year, preferably sooner. And one of the promised benefits of Brexit is that the UK will be able to do trade agreements with other countries around the world, broadening the scope of our trade relationships. I just wonder, Sam, what role do you think there is for international trade agreements improving supply chain resilience in the sector? I mean, you know, if we did a trade deal with a particular country, be it India, China or somebody else, what material difference might that make? Well, I think that's an interesting point. And as the UK begins to strike out on its own and establish these trade deals, what most companies would be looking for is frictionless trade. I mean, you're you're looking for low duties, low tariffs. You're looking for the elimination of non-tariff barriers, seamless exchange of paperwork between countries. Businesses want to have ease of trade as much as possible. And by having those measures in place, as if, if we're signing up with the US or with China and India, that is sort of the ideal scenario. However, if you do have situations where there are increased tariff costs, new non-tariff barriers set up between ourselves and China or ourselves in the US, then that impedes trade because it, it creates bureaucracy, it creates additional paperwork, it also creates costs for businesses. So in an ideal situation, most businesses will be looking to eliminate trade barriers and make sure that we have uh, open markets between us. Richard, can I ask you about the NHS? It's obviously the main buyer of pharma products in this country. I wonder whether the unique position of the NHS strengthens our overall supply chain resilience, or does it in some way impede it? I'm not really sure it makes a difference one way or the other, really, in the sense that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry operates on a global basis. And, you know, in every healthcare system, the companies would want to set themselves up to be able to deliver medicines to patients. And that is the kind of top priority anywhere. The NHS itself is not one organisation. I mean, we always call it the, the NHS. It's 
it's actually thousands of legal entities in a way. I mean, you, at one level, you've got devolved different NHSs in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. You've got within medicines purchasing just in England, you have some things that are nationally commissioned through somebody in uh, NHS England's kind of headquarters. Uh, but you've got up, you've got over 200 clinical commissioning groups that would purchase other types of medicines kind of more, more, more locally. So I think it's important to see the NHS on the one level it is on the one level it's one customer because it's the state that pays uh, ultimately the voluntary scheme that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast is a deal that we do at the national level for the UK with the British government, and that caps the whole market for everybody. But in terms of the supply resilience, I think I'm not really sure that it has much of a bearing, really, other than, you know, we we would work in exactly the same way to ensure supply as we do in Germany or France elsewhere, and we'll have very different structures, of course. Yeah, I just add on that point. I mean, I think the advantage of the NHS is probably the procurement and the, you know, the size of the organization gives it buying power and it gives it, you know, the ability to to negotiate with uh, pharmaceutical companies because it's such a large organization. And I think if we look at um, some of the issues with what's happened in the U.S., where they have, you know, a decentralized health system, you hear stories about different states or different hospitals maybe wanting to hang on to medicines for themselves, prioritizing their own um, the needs of their own patients, whereas the NHS is able to move drugs around as and when they're needed across the U.K. So there's some advantages there as well. I want to go back to COVID-19. Now, the question of pharmaceutical research and development has probably never been more in the public consciousness than it is at present. Anyone who comes up with an effective vaccine for coronavirus will be the white knights of our time. But I wonder to what extent this throws a spotlight on the question of the balance between private sector development and sort of public sector supply and procurement policy. How, to put it simply, how can we ensure that the supplies we need from any new vaccine supply chain without lapsing into hoarding or anti-competitive behaviour? I wonder what your views are on that, either of you. So I'm happy to kick off. (laughs) Um, And look, if I may, I think this is a completely extraordinary time to state the obvious. And, you know, there is an enormous global effort going on right now throughout the industry to produce new vaccines and therapeutics through either repurposing older medicines or developing medicines that were almost licensed for something else, but quite similar to coronavirus or entirely new therapeutics. The vaccines piece alone, there are over 140 new vaccines being investigated. That is absolutely extraordinary. If we had this crisis even 10 years ago and the ask on the industry had been to produce a a vaccine from scratch, it would have been a 15 to 20 year task. So the fact that we are where we are today and there are even five of those 140 that are in phase three clinical trials. So we have a number of medicines in clinical development, but five are in phase three, which is the big, larger scale trials, is absolutely extraordinary. I think there were about 40 days from the first sequencing of the coronavirus in China to a first clinical trial participant being dosed 
with a potential messenger RNA vaccine in the US, which is just unbelievable. Now, your, your question about what do we do when one or other or probably a package of these vaccines is licensed for wider use, it's incredibly challenging. We've not been here before. We've never really tried to roll out an immunisation programme for the entire Earth at the same time. And that's, that's no exaggeration. We are talking about billions and billions of of doses. There isn't one company that is going to be able to provide the solution on the technical side of things. We're going to have to have a package of, of vaccines. It can't be and it won't be the companies down to the private sector to determine how a kind of fair allocation globally will work. The companies will always want to support a rational, fair allocation process around the world, prioritising a sensible rational kind of prioritization to make sure that the medicines get the vaccines get where they're needed now there are a number of global initiatives right now the primary one through a combination of gavi which is the global public-private partnership that's been focused for a number of years on on vaccines access around the world and cepi which focused on you know pandemic preparedness and, and supporting you know vaccines in development these two organizations have got together and are working on a program called covax which is the international collaborative between governments, collaborative scheme between governments to work on those fair allocation principles so that when vaccines are available, they're kind of distributed on a sort of as-needs basis as much as possible. But I think, you know, hoarding irresponsible behaviour by governments would be a bad thing right now. For the avoidance of doubt, I don't consider the UK government's work in this to be hoarding at all. I think uh, I think it is quite appropriate that governments all governments will need to have their own conversations with companies, and that is going on right now globally. Companies are putting billions into manufacturing around the world to ensure that we don't all have all our eggs in one basket and to ensure we're able to serve global markets. And they're doing that at risk before they know whether or not any of these things are going to work and get a license. Yeah, I think Richard's points are spot on. And I think it's it's very important to look at the benefits of private-public partnerships. If we look at Oxford and AstraZeneca, I mean, the work that they're doing together is, is fantastic. And I think that government intervention in that is, is probably only going to disrupt it. I think if we need to have 60% of the population vaccinated... It's not just 60% of the UK population, that's 60% of the global population. So if we just look to hoard and vaccinate our own populace, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice. Then we would effectively have to close our borders. So it's in everybody's interest that the entire globe has access to this vaccine um, in order to hit that vaccination rate. Richard, perhaps a final word from you as we draw our podcast towards a conclusion. Okay, so final word is that I think, you know, medicines markets are incredibly important. I mean, it's, you know, if if there's one thing we've learned over the last few months, it's that when health goes wrong in a crisis like COVID, uh, the consequences can be really quite dramatic. It's incredibly important that we have a robust and resilient supply chains globally and that we have fair mechanisms for allocating new medicines where new threats come about like COVID. I think resilience needs to be the thing we focus on before focusing on onshoring. I think that could be part of the solution, although I think it would be very challenging if every country wanted to onshore even a small part of their kind of medicines manufacturing needs. 
And I think a country like the UK really needs to reflect on where it wants to compete in the value chain. Sam, final word from you? Yeah, final word from me is what I would urge companies to do is not return to business as usual. I would urge pharmaceutical companies to prioritize resilience and responsiveness in their supply chains over what we've seen in the past is in such a specific focus on cost and efficiency, especially in in generic supply. And in order to build this risk and resilience, it's about getting visibility in your supply chain all the way down to the raw material supply. It's about spreading your geographical risk and also establishing this idea of parallel supply chains, the idea of having percentage of your production capacity close to the market and having the ability to switch production volumes as and when uh, crises materialize, because you can guarantee um, there will be crises in the future. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for your contributions today. It's not often that we have discussions on trade bites, which really amount to uh, life and death issues, but there's no doubt that this is absolutely the case in this particular case. So we need to wrap things up for now. Thank you very much indeed to both of my guests today, to Dr. Sam Roscoe and to Dr. Richard Torbett. And of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bytes podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.